0: Welcome to Settle the Far, this is Corey Garvey, and in this podcast, I sit down and I talk to people who have started a new life in an entirely new place. That could be a new city or country they've moved to, perhaps a new community that they've joined, or a new career that they've started. And I'm so inspired by this because I've loved having conversations with people when I'm making moves myself, and learning what they have gone through gives me a lot of confidence and makes me understand that everyone's path is unique, and... It's those stories that I really want to show in Settle the Far. If you're interested in the material, check out the website, podcast.coreygarvey.com, where I've included some show notes and maybe some pictures of the guests. In this episode, I'm speaking with Willard Johnson. He grew up in Seattle and played college basketball in Boston, before moving to multiple different countries and playing semi-professionally around the world. We delve into each of these stories, and I really learn, and I think you will as well, from Bill, that being able to jump on opportunities and be flexible with yourself is so important, and by putting his passion above all else, he's been able to do that and been able to really take in a lot of the world that he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. For the last four and a half years, Bill has been living on the Tibetan Plateau in a place called Ratoma, where he works at a local textile company as well as being the village basketball coach, and he has really built the game up there in a way that it wasn't there previously, and I think it's... A wonderful story and one that I really suggest uh, looking looking into more following this. Bill was really helpful throughout the recording of Settle the Far. He recorded with me twice the first time I was having some difficulties. But I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's quite a long conversation, but I think if you take it in chunks or if you really like it, um, he has some really great insights on really life and, and and what it's been like for him to move to such a foreign place like Tibet. So, without further ado, enjoy this episode of Settled Afar and my conversation with Willard Johnson. Hey, Bill. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Hey, Corey. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So, it's been almost three years now since I originally visited you out in Tibet. And I have to say that is still a trip that is super vivid in my mind. So, I'm glad we're going to get some time to go over... What life has been like since I left, and and sort of what got you there?
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was really great having you out there, and uh, it's a lot has stayed the same, and a lot has changed uh, since you've been out there.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. So, I think that's a good place to start. Is what I viewed as sort of the central core of what's going on in Rotoma, where you are living. Can you explain a bit about the significance of the yak in Tibet and in Tibetan culture and what the animal means for them now and what it's meant for them historically, I guess? Um,
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, we're out in Rotoma Village, which is a part of the Ghanaian Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture uh, in China. So there's 12 Tibetan Autonomous Prefectures in addition to the Tibet Autonomous Region, and all of those make up the these this Tibetan area, the Tibetan plateau uh, in China, and where we are is right at the beginning of the plateau, uh, just under eleven thousand feet. Um, so at that altitude, very little survives, and one of those uh, things that does survive is the yak, um, and the yak is as you said, central to Tibetan life and nomadic life. And most uh, nomads in general um, are nomads, either monks or nomads, or the monks come from nomadic families.
0: Sorry, most Tibetans are nomads, you're saying?
1: Sorry,
0: what's that? Most Tibetans are nomads
1: yeah most Tibetans uh, are nomads, so what they do is they spend uh, spend their life uh, herding their yak and sometimes uh, sheep. So they spend a lot of the year on the move. They'll spend the winter months uh, a bit more sedentary in their winter encampment and then the warmer months uh, moving around uh, uh, in their tents uh, with their yaks. and so the yak is is essential to their survival um, as a people. And because the yak offers everything to them, uh, it offers a mode of transportation when they move from camp to camp. Uh, the yak hair uh, allows them to make these tents uh, to what they live in. Uh, the yak wool, they can make clothing out of. Uh, the yak dung, they use the dung for fuel and to heat uh, their tents. Uh, the yak dairy, uh, so the milk, uh, they make the cheese and the butter uh, and yak butter tea itself is a very uh, nutritious a hearty tea uh, drink that they uh, drink a lot of um, and the meat and uh, when well, they do use the meat uh, for sustenance, so it's really, you know nomads and yaks go hand in hand and so for centuries uh, the, the nomads and yaks have lived side by side and have survived with each other. And what's interesting now and within these last few decades, nomadism as a way of life is drastically on the decline for, for a number of reasons. Um, and this is what Norla is doing. The company that I work with and the one you came out and saw, uh, they are... Uh, transitioning the yak and using the yak still in a modern way uh, um, in this new endeavor that they've started.
0: Now, here's Bill with a few more points about Norla from the first conversation we had. Now, for
1: a whole slew of reasons, um, that way of life is is drastically on the decline and nomads from these remote areas are being forced to move into the cities, into these Chinese metropolises, where they face a lot of issues. Um, they don't, you know, they don't speak the same language. It's a completely different language, uh, Tibetan and Chinese and Mandarin. Uh, they don't have the skills that uh, these city jobs require. Um, they have a certain set of skills, but it's it's uh, not the ones that uh, the jobs that are available have. Um, you know, a lot of them are. Uh, you know, can't read and write. Uh, they don't have a tip, you know, quote-unquote, formal education uh, uh, that these other jobs again require. Um, and the saddest part is, it's that's the end of this this kind of way of life that they had, and their traditions and culture that that really thrived in these areas. You know, with uh, uh, with a religion, which with living with their families. Um, just this, this, the Tibetanness and Tibetan culture kind of is, is lost as they go to the cities. So what Norla, Norla saw this in, in, in what they're doing is, is stepping in to provide an alternative to allow them to stay in their home villages and keep their traditions as they wish and uh, kind of put the future in their hands. And it all started with yak again, with yak, uh, the yak hulu. and Kim Yeshi um, she, uh, whose husband is Tibetan is from uh Tibet, um, you know, had this hunch that Yak Hulu was a very, very fine world-class textile. And so she sent her daughter, Dechen, out to kind of investigate this and to to try it out. And after a series of of tests and and um a lot of challenges they faced, it it turns out it was ac- it was exactly that. Yak Hulu is is up there with, you know, the cashmere's of the world and uh, uh, the high-end silks and um, it's a very durable uh, textile uh, fiber because of the yaks only, you know, live at these very high altitudes and these very harsh environments. Um, It's very durable yet very soft. So those two qualities normally don't, um, you know, aren't found together in a fiber and the warmth that it brings. And it's also a very vegan, uh, you know, ethical, you know, textile. It just falls off the yak. Uh, There's uh, nothing that's done to it, um, you know, in the manufacturing process or it's not uh, unethically, you know, taken from the animal. Uh, So they used that to to start this business and they employed these these former nomads and trained them as artisans because these artisans did have this skill of uh, these nomads of, Um, you know, being able to weave and be able to, able to knit. And uh, these, these were skills that didn't require necessarily, again, a formal education or, or uh, being able to read or write. So they took that, they took, you know, this workforce, or if you want to call it that, these people, this population that kind of everyone else wrote off and, and didn't see, you know, them having a future other than, other than nomadism. And uh, so this, this, these people combined with this fiber and co- combining it with, um, this vision and these, this training and, you know, eventually now technology really created this, uh, business. That's really transforming, uh, the, the lives of the,
0: the people here and across the plateau. So you brought up a couple points there that are interesting to talk on it to be clear, when you talk about all these things that they get from the yak, the dung, the fur, the dairy, there are no other large animals up there, right?
1: Right, exactly. So it's really, you know, there's some some smaller ones uh, uh, out there, but really the yak itself in terms of that size, um, and especially, you know, the wild yak uh, can are, are huge. It can be standing over, yeah, over seven feet tall and just these massive uh, animals. So, yeah, nothing of
0: that sort, even remotely close, uh, survives. Are there other farm animals that we would see or that I would expect that I, you know, chicken, eggs, is that stuff available?
1: Um, uh, Traditionally, no. Um, And where we are now in Rotoma, again, we're actually at a lower, quote-unquote lower part of the plateau. Um, A lot of areas are up at, you know, 13,000 feet plus 13,000 to 16,000 feet. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, farming just doesn't exist there where we are. We're right on the cusp of where farming could exist down close to like 8,000 feet, um, 9,000. Um, and because it's proximity to China and traditional Chinese areas, um, there are some, um, kind of m- mixing happening. So where we sure. are, um, Yeah, chickens, uh, I haven't seen up until this last year. I think I've seen like one chicken. Um, There's some pigs. uh, And then uh, naturally, there's in in the wild, there's things called marmots, like big gerbils. Um, There's foxes. There's uh, an antelope type animal, hawks uh, and vultures. Those are the primary ones. But as move... As you move up in altitude really it's 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 only the yaks up there,
0: yeah, and my experience was that they i couldn't believe how close they were and how I could actually uh sort of see them all grazing and we'll get into the nomadism in a minute, but how how do how do the, you interact with the yaks when you're there, like are they kept in a barn are they now that people have been moving from the nomadism of moving around and being in different places to a settled area, are they still sort of shepherded around? How does that work?
1: Yeah, it depends on the time of the year. So during the winter, uh, they'll, the winter encampments and the winter homes, they'll have uh, sheltered areas where the yaks stay uh, overnight. Um, and then in the mornings, they're brought out to herd, uh, come back for a little bit, and then again in the evenings, brought out to herd. Uh, Or to graze Uh, and then the rest of the year when they're moving in their tents with uh, Within their summer encampment, which is outdoor um, they're all kind of uh, Stay in uh, one area in the encampment and then yeah grazing most of the time so a majority of the time they are out out in the
0: plateau grazing and Tibet's a gigantic area like the geography is absolutely huge the people, are you around people who were nomads during their own lifetime and how, how big of an area would they cover? Like, would they come back to the same places? I don't really know much about this.
1: Yeah. So nomadism, the good thing is nomadism, especially in Aria is still very much alive. So everyone I've talked to is either still a nomad or, um, as part of a nomadic family, they, they may no longer be hurting, but their family is, um, so a lot of our basketball team actually, that a coach, uh, they're they're still nomads. and so they'll uh, do that during the day, but yeah, as you mentioned, the Tibetan Plateau is just absolutely huge in terms of a uh, regional uh, areas. Yeah, it's the size of, of Western Europe, um, up there with the largest countries, uh, biggest countries in the world. Um, it's yeah, just just vast and. So when they move, yeah, they'll definitely uh, at one point, um, you know, they'll graze within a certain vicinity. But as they move throughout the year, it's definitely several miles uh, that they're they're moving around and in elevation as well. um, Several thousand feet in terms of uh, moving up to higher pastures and then lower pastures. Um, But yeah, everyone you meet in Rotomim, you've met a lot. uh, they're, They're
0: very much still still nomads, still doing it. Yeah, sure. And it seemed to me that the fact that Norla, which we'll get into, um, the textile company that you work for there, the fact that you're using yak wool as the core product, how does that, how, how do the employees, uh, feel about it and does it add sort of a significance to it or is it, Yeah. What are the employees' like reaction to the fact that they're making something from this yak wool?
1: Yeah, it's the 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 fact that it is yak wool. It's and especially when this this concept, this idea of this you know textile, this fashion brand uh, being introduced uh, in a place like Rotoma, where jobs, quote unquote, traditional jobs never existed. Um, They were nomads. For their parents were nomads or grandparents all the way down for all their ancestors. So nomadism is all they all they know. It's in their blood. It's in their DNA. So to introduce this, a job and a nine to five job was a very, very, very new concept. And it being yak um, uh, very much, I think, made that transition easier to it. And it's very much... Something that is a part of their life, so it's something they're very familiar with, uh, extremely familiar with. And now this foreign concept of this job uh, with this familiar thing, I think um, that's what made it uh, uh, easier, I think, for them. And it's something now that not only the workers, the employees there, you know, take a lot of pride in, in building, in creating something that's uniquely Tibetan. From the heart of, of the plateau, and something that's been a part of their culture for uh, you know, a millennial uh, Tibetans as a whole, uh, Tibetans across the plateau, and Tibetans abroad, uh, really connect with it in in that way. Speaking with them and in uh, talking with them, their connection with 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 Norla and uh, uh, Norla and uh, Nor, uh, the, even the name itself is that connection. Nor uh, is what tibetans call their yak nor means uh wealth so they'll call their yak you know wealth this is this is how they survive so nor and then la, e la means uh uh gods it's like Lhasa, the capital um god so uh it means wealth of the gods norla um so now norla uses you know yak in this modern way now yak woe is found on the you know in the fashion houses in the streets of Paris. Uh, uh, so this new thing that keeps the Tibetan culture alive, but in a very kind of modern context.
0: Sure. Is there anything you can think of that you've learned from the nomad culture mm. that someone like me who maybe has always been, uh, I guess, growing up with people that have had a static location might not have come across
1: yeah i mean the biggest thing you know that i've learned with the nomads is it's a couple of things but one is just concept of time and especially in the west we're so time is just such a thing it's such a um down to the second with uh um everything is just dictated by by this time and whats your what you're worth even like people's worth are measured in time how much you being paid per hour and and you 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 start to view the world in that you start to view like oh am I gonna spend my time this hour doing this there's now all of a sudden an opportunity cost with time uh, in the West and what, what I grew up with um, that doesn't exist uh, on the plateau as a nomad you know time itself is is much, uh more fluid you know it's it's by the seasons it's by the sun it's much more natural uh it's not as man-made um things like birthdays you know in the west you know we have we have our birthday this is our day of the birth and birthdays don't exist out uh, on the plateau but you know everyone's birthday is the start of the new year so they're on the lunar calendar um so on this new moon it's everyone's birthday and you know, you don't have a specific, you know, date. It's not yours. This isn't your day. Um, so that's the biggest thing it's just this whole concept of time. And even, uh, you know, as a basketball coach, that was, uh, that was a new thing to get used to because um, these were two worlds colliding of, of, of time and what that meant. Um, so that was one thing. And, and uh, with that comes patience. I mean, just things move slower out there. They move a bit more thoughtfully, um, a bit slower. You know, it moves, you know, uh, with nature. Again, it moves, things are measured in seasons. Things are measured, uh, you know, by the sun, by the moon. Um, So this, you know, this urgency that comes from the West because of time, it, you know, it affects things. It affects, uh, yeah, how you work and, and how you live your life. So they're just patience and patience with um, each other. Like, I come up from a very different background from them. So it's been patience on both sides of as we've kind of built, you know, for me personally, relationships with people out there in terms of how things work, both from the Norla side of things and with the basketball side of things, for sure. Um, so this, this concept of time, this, this patience, um, are, are probably the, the, the biggest things. Yeah.
0: That's great. And I think I've gotten the chance to move away and seeing how different people take on such sort of central parts of life to you. And a lot of times it's dictated by where you're from, but, um, you almost don't even know that it's something that can be challenged until you see a whole nother people that have decided that they're not going to fit into how that works. And then it seems almost obvious after the fact that it's sort of something we've created.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, exactly. The taking, it was probably a, a thing I've learned through doing this is really taking yourself out of whatever it is you're in taking that step back and like you said you're so in it you're so in your own world or you know people call it bubbles or whatever it is and you don't know anything otherwise until you are out of it and like you said once you are out of it and you were looking at it looking at it from the outside and seeing how other people do things it makes sense and it's it's yeah it really is enlightening yeah
0: Totally. So you, you brought up there that you are a basketball coach. And we'll get back to Norla a little bit, but I was hoping you might be able to talk quickly about your first living abroad experience. Um, I know you traveled a bit throughout college, but, but maybe after that, going and living abroad for the first time and how basketball was a part of that.
1: Yeah, um so yeah, living abroad for the first time it was actually two instances. One, my first time living abroad was was actually without basketball. And this um thing I just mentioned of taking a step back and taking a step out of it, that's actually what I needed because as you mentioned I was playing basketball in college and before and it was a super intense thing. It was it was a grind. It was um, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, super tolling. Uh, I did it for five years in college, so I stayed an extra year. I was hurt one season and stayed an extra year. and and um, all of the emotions that come with come with that. Um, it, w- it was a lot um, from the daily trainings to things like injuries and things like expectations and staying a whole nother year. Um, At MIT, there's no sports scholarship. So uh, that's, you know, that's something I paid for that fifth year to, you know, to play again. And then to have, you know, things maybe not go uh, as you plan. You know, there's a lot of expectations. We had a really good year the year before. Uh, We did well that next year, but we wanted to to go even further, for instance, in the uh, postseason tournament we played in. Um, So when that that final like buzzer sounded like that next day holy moly I just uh I needed a break like it was just so intense for so long basketball so actually after my last game I I I didn't um I needed to take a step back and I didn't play for some time and actually I went and lived in India uh for a bit and that was a very eye-opening experience for a number of reasons one from a basketball taking a step back from the basketball but then just really immersing and living in being amongst a culture that's just so different than what i had been used to and what i grew up with um just from you know every day walking to my job a tech job and then just literally passing by dozens and dozens of families like living on the street, uh, you know, the, the smell, the, 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 visuals of poverty, the, the heat, uh, the, the noise of the, the honking, um, the congestion, it was just, wow. Just on every sense, every, every sense of the body, it was just triggered. Um, so that was actually my, my first living abroad experience. And it was during then that I realized how much I did miss basketball. Um, I came back and coached uh, at, uh, at my alma mater uh, after this trip. Um, and I actually got to go see our mutual friend, Jimmy Bartolotta, uh, a really great player, go play professionally in Iceland. So all of these experiences um, then... Led me to uh, living abroad with basketball, um, and after after that time in India and missing basketball and coaching it, seeing it from a different perspective and seeing uh, a good friend of mine, you know, play it professionally overseas. I was itching for for basketball now. You know, something earlier where I I needed to take a break from. I realized how important it was because I was seeing it from all these different angles now and that's when kind of soon, well, I guess we can mention karma now uh, with, with Tibetan culture, but it's almost like karma where then I'm sitting at, at my desk, uh, at this uh, new job that I, that I started, um, and I get an email and it's an email about playing with a professional basketball team in Costa Rica while getting to work while helping out at a social enterprise. Uh, working with uh, some uh, disadvantaged uh, youth in Costa Rica. And I was like, wow. At that moment, it was the first moment for me where that feeling of just wanting to drop everything and go do this. There's just immense clarity on like this. This is, I have to go do this. Um,
0: Okay. So, So if I could jump in before we get into what ended up happening, I guess, with that. Um, how did the trip to India sort of, I guess, empower you to do that? Did you did you search for for things because you had been to India, or was it more of a personal? Was it a personal thing? How, how did how did India set you up well to take that news?
1: Yeah, I mean, India was just a, a great primer for what I ended up uh, doing. It was. Uh, being um
0: and how long were you there?
1: I was there a little over two months. Um yeah, two and a half months. And uh and why
0: yeah. India? Why did why did you go there?
1: Um part of it was just uh set up through the school. It was um connections with the school uh with uh with MIT and a program they had of where you they'd set up set you up with organizations out there. Um but what
0: were you, what was your, I guess, rather than India, as opposed to another country, mm-hmm. why India, as opposed to going down to Florida and going to the beach or mm. going to work in California? What, yeah. what yeah. were you thinking at that point?
1: I, and you know, I didn't know a lot about India at the time, but I do remember, uh, my aunt and uncle did live, live there. And, uh, hearing about their experiences and, and, seeing some pictures. And, um, so that was definitely in my mind and I knew what little I did know of it. I knew it was a very different place and that's where I wanted to go someplace very different, uh, than what I would, what I was used to. So it, it was a combination of that, but, and then also a, a really, again, a very unique, different culture. One that's, that's, uh, you know, been around for so long and it's still yet so strong. So this combination of all those things just, um, yeah,
0: attracted me to there. And then, so you were working in Massachusetts and received this call about going to Costa Rica, working in some social work down there while playing basketball. What, uh, what was that experience like? How, how did it go from there?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, so it it ended up uh, working out um, where, yeah, I got to go and and play on this team. And, yeah, it was a really, um, yeah, really interesting experience on a a lot of levels. I mean, uh, I went and I played for a team in a small town uh, called San Ramon, um, and I would bus. Uh, between San Ramon where the team practiced, and where this organization was kind of based in the capital of San Jose. Um, So it was first off the biggest learning experience through it. So what I did is I played for this team. It was uh, in their national league. And so there was eight teams in this national league. And again, Costa Rica is a very small country. Um, So we would travel around the country and and play these different teams. And um, I was there for about six months um and yeah the the first the biggest thing i learned through all of it was just um that there was first of all just what a really interesting way to see the world so i just came back from india where i i, I saw it but i was still very much um an outsider in a sense like I was there and I was living there but um, there was still another you know another step in terms of connections that, that I, I didn't have and that's what basketball did in Costa Rica and has done ever since and so what was really cool was to go to this foreign country and now On day one, you are a part of this team. You are a part of this community. You are in it with everyone else. Um, And you pick up on all of the little nuances of a culture uh, that you might not see otherwise. All the daily little small intricacies of, of that culture. And you learn a lot just through those daily happenings and getting the vibe of the team and vibe of the players and vibe of the community um, rather than just seeing certain parts at certain times or different snapshots. Like you are there in it constantly and you are seeing the highs, you are seeing the lows, you are feeling the emotions, you are with them sharing these experiences. And
0: do you have an example um, of something in Costa Rica or maybe later on where you, you got to be in it and feel it from the inside that where you're at that spot in India where you're sort of a tourist in a way, or you're there for clearly a short period of time and you're not, you don't feel totally engaged. Um, I mean, not totally engaged, but you don't feel totally having made the jump into what their culture is. Are there things that you were able to do? Is it food that you were able to eat or some sort of uh, trust that other people had in you that you didn't experience in India. You have any examples of that?
1: Yeah. And it's an interesting point, especially like you said with, with India, cause that was exactly it. I was literally just passing by these people and these families on the street just constantly every day. But that's all I was. I was just passing by. I was just seeing it. Um, which was very moving, but it was still, there was still that that disconnect. Um, And yeah, I mean, the instances in Costa Rica, I mean, uh, you know, for instance, uh, like racism, seeing what uh, racism was in that country, in their, their, you know, just with skin color and skin tone. And there were differences in skin tone between uh, people who lived on the Eastern coast of Costa Rica, uh, much more darker, uh, versus the rest of the country, a bit more lighter skinned. And, um, and there was an instance where, yeah, within the basketball game, uh, where one of our players, a darker skinned, uh, and a referee, a referee, a lighter skinned referee and, um, seeing, uh, seeing that dynamic where, uh, according to this player, he felt very discriminated, discriminated against by this ref, and the ref actually, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, saying some racial slurs to him, and seeing uh, seeing that unfold, and seeing it, uh, you know, it, you know, I saw it erupt during a game. This particular referee and our player, and I, I couldn't quite understand it. Come on, the language and. Um, learning more about it turns out the year prior, um, that did happen where there was racial slurs and, and discrimination felt and to the point where the player went and got, uh, got a gun, got a shotgun and, uh, it was in his car and brought it into the gym and like that series, that series of, of a threat he felt, um, and, you know, he was he was banned for a, a year or several years. And he had just come back that season right when I was playing and, and seeing the aftermath of it and seeing it blow up there. Um, that was, whoa, like uh, that's, um, you know, seeing seeing this dynamic, this really personal issue, this social issue that really is affecting people. And then now seeing it on the basketball court and uh Seeing the rage in uh, our basketball players, my teammates, my teammates' eyes, and seeing the fear of the referee's eyes, and where he ran off, and those kind of moments, and those kind of instances, where you are seeing and feeling in a part of like emotions of you know serious social issues that don't just occur in Costa Rica; they occur you know everywhere. And those kind of instances occurred you know, down the street, you know, where we are in the United States and there's areas of the United States I haven't been. Um, but it was, um, yeah, in this case, this experience overseas, um,
0: uh, brought that, uh,
1: was, was very real for me.
0: Yeah, that is super real. I don't know if it gets more real than, you know, having those, um, getting into that world where that kind of stuff can happen. And you're right. It's a, it's, it's the thing of getting and being a normal person in that scene, such that you actually are exposed to that. Mm -hmm. And it's a privilege to be able to get there. And I think, you know, clearly playing basketball puts you in a, a space where you're playing in the national basketball league. It's, the the basketball league of the country it's not some foreign company that is has a couple offices there or something or even a a local company that um that's sort of in its own little space you're you're sort of out there for fans to come watch and things like that can you explain how basketball's set up in this in Costa Rica and then i know this has become a recurring theme for you uh the professional basketball overseas situation so how does that how is it set up and how does that um how did that sort of further make you feel like okay this is a great way to see the world like this isn't just um, moving somewhere and getting a job locally but this is a particularly um more insightful location or space to be in the culture than maybe the the average uh expat who comes and lives here
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, so that was the thing I learned in, in Costa Rica. A big thing was, wow, you can, what a great, yeah, way to see, not only see, but understand like the world, you know, around you, um, was through basketball, through this connection that we shared, you know, it happened to be basketball. It could be, it could be music, it could be another sport, it could be art, it could be, you know, certain academic subjects, um, religion, in, in my case, it was, it was basketball. It was a connection that, that we shared. And we didn't need to speak necessarily the same language. But once we got on the basketball court, we had this, you know, you know, connection. We had this, this trust. We, we worked together. There was all these nonverbal communications that came with it. Um, so that was the first thing. And with that, too, I learned just as exactly as you asked how the, the world of basketball like the world of basketball in itself, there is this whole world of basketball out there that I didn't even realize. Um, and how um,
0: how this is professionally you're you're speaking of? Yeah,
1: professionally, but also semi-professionally, and, and just this world of this how is you know where does basketball exist and it exists everywhere in in terms of how it's structured? Um, yeah, in in Costa Rica in particular, um, yeah, there was these eight teams, but there's there's this Spectrum of perfect, quote unquote professional or overseas uh, semi-professional basketball that I didn't know. You know, I thought you had to be a you know a big time player, like borderline NBA, with an agent, and it's a lot of money. And uh, you know, there's no way I can do it. Um, but that's not the case. That's only a very very small fraction of this world of basketball that's out there of of professional, semi-professional, <laughs> overseas basketball. Um, so there's a spectrum among countries. There's some really, really good countries that have really, really good leagues, like, uh, some of the European leagues and, uh, the Euro league. And, uh, those are, yeah, next, you know, can compete with NBA teams. Um, but again, that's only a fraction. There's a whole spectrum where there's, yeah, countries that, um, have a national league, but they're still developing. And there's countries where don't quite have a national league yet, like Cambodia, uh, They, they don't really have that. And, um, so internationally there's a spectrum of basketball and even within the country, there's usually a spectrum. So for instance, in Costa Rica of these eight teams, there's a spectrum of, uh, of money, of skill, of all of that. So the top teams, there was a couple of top teams that could pay their foreign players. They could bring in imports. They had a lot of money. Uh, you know, they were full on professional, uh, But then there was also some of the lower skilled teams that didn't have any money, um, good players, but they didn't have any money. Um, they couldn't afford imports. Um, and that's where, but it was the same league and they're playing against each other and it's still basketball and it's still a very cool experience and it's still the national league. Um, that's what I came to discover after playing in these countries is, yeah, there's just this whole world of basketball where you don't, necessarily have to be borderline nba to go play in these leagues and have a really really interesting experience and especially coming from the united states where basketball is so big and there's so many great players and you know if you play college basketball you have played a lot of basketball in your life and you've probably had a lot of good coaches and you are probably on the world stage of basketball you are. Up there with, um, you know, being one of the better players percentage-wise. If you've played, for instance, college basketball, and it's kind of a shame that even before the prime of your physical career, you know, at 22 or whatever it is, that's it. You're you're kind of done playing. And there's this whole vacuum, this whole world out there of all these teams and all these countries and all these organizations that could use and would value a lot from a, a, a player who has played collegially in the United States, Division 1, 2 or 3. Um, and if you're okay with not, maybe sometimes not even being paid, you know, if there's a way you can support yourself in some other way uh, to go play on these teams and have the same exact experience as the guy making a lot of money uh, in the same exact league. Uh, sure.
0: So that's, that's a point.
1: Sorry, go on. That's why I just, what, those are the two things I discovered was what a great way to see the world through basketball. But then also, wow, there's this whole basketball world that just a ton of opportunities to go play. And that's when uh, it kind of began. It was like, okay, let's let's go see, see the world through this. Yeah.
0: And that last point that you brought up about sometimes you're not paid and being able to make sure that you're getting something enough to, to be able to have that experience. And it sounds like the experience itself is what you're really prioritizing here. And that's what makes it worth it. What do you mean by that? Not getting paid? What is that? What does that entail? Mm-hmm. Is this teams that all allow you to, you know, sleep on the coach's couch in order to, to play in games like, and, and, And what is your? How do you think that sort of um, maybe improves the experience or changes the experience by not getting paid by making clearly basketball or or what basketball is offering you the focus of the of your time there? Um, I, I would imagine in Costa Rica you were if you were working a second job and it was this humanitarian work that you weren't getting paid a ton of money. How does that? sort of influence your whole situation
1: yeah it definitely there's interesting like dynamics from from both sides and i was i was never you know ever really in a situation where i was being paid like a lot the, when i went and played out in iceland with with jimmy he was getting paid well and he could like make a career out of it and even just talking with him um about his experiences with that and but even myself you know in iceland you know you got what i think it was got like and again this is on the lower end of all these uh, professional basketball but it is um you know it was like a couple hundred bucks 500 bucks you get uh, a hotel to stay in you get a car to drive around and then you get um meal tickets like it's subway and it Chinese restaurant um, so that was the package that was the, that was the you know,
0: yeah. and that
1: was like the most uh, professional it got for me where it was you know closer to a, a you know a self-sustaining job um, and then versus situations like yeah in Africa I had a, a bed to sleep on actually it was a uh, uh, a kid's bed it was a race car bed that I slept in and I got some meals
0: and and just so everybody everybody knows, how tall are you? About 6'8". Uh, yeah,
1: so six it was tough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> big race car. Uh, big race car.
1: Um, you know, just kind of doing whatever to, to, to make it work. And, you know, I was lucky I did have, you know, a part-time computer job. So it, um, you know, helped. Um, but it does. It does change where it becomes a job, where it's um, – you know you're you're in it to make money and you know a lot of these guys out there point just trying to make it trying to make it to the next level try to get that bigger paycheck um they do they do they have families back home they have people that are trying to provide for so it's it's very much um yeah a respectable job and they want to do whatever they can to earn that money and it's interesting seeing what happens when that is the case and what you do see, and there's a lot of positives with it because these guys are incredible players and I was never the player they were. And But you do start to see where they're very much focused on their performance, their stat lines, because their stat lines equals that next team, that next job. So it's very much how many shots they get up. It's very much um, their statistics. How are they performing? How many times are they getting the ball? Um, Win-loss – you know, there's some incentives. If your team wins, you get some more money and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's really your resume. How are you building your basketball resume? Um, and unfortunately, it's that's kind of tough. Those are tough guys to play with sometimes. They're incredible players, but then it doesn't become basketball in its purest sense. And that's what I realized I, I, I did like was when you do take – when money is no longer a big part of the equation, it's no longer an overwhelming factor of it. You know, it's still part of it. It's still you know in in the equation, but not as uh, big. Uh, the purity of basketball comes out, and you're you're there, you know, to make these connections. You're there for the experience. You're there to become you know grow as a person, grow as a basketball player. You're not as concerned. Not scoring as much. Um, you want to like when I went to this island of of Saul in Cape Verde, they had never won, you know, a national championship. You know, they. Uh, this
0: is in Africa. This
1: is in Africa. So in Cape Verde, yeah, there's ten islands, and kind of each have their own little mini league on each island, and so we our team represented our island, and I took that really really personal like this you know here and after especially after spending so much time with these guys and training with them every day and um kind of seeing you know that they didn't have they didn't believe that they could win they've, they've never won it before and it kind of brought them back to the time at mit where for 110 years mit had never won a league championship and the belief um you know, luckily I came in with a class who really, really believed, and so seeing that, and and um, then it became much more than just like basketball or payments or anything like that. It's like, guys, like this is an opportunity to to win a national championship. Like, how that's that's a really cool thing. And it's a really powerful thing, and that was. Um, yeah that that really kind of connected us as our our collective confidence grew and it became very personal for me i took it very personal how our team did and what how we performed at this national tournament and we were representing you know you are representing this island you have people there like wanting you to do well and like you are affecting like moods and emotions um so that, yeah, that became a really powerful thing for me and what I continue to do and continue to do now with, um, with this basketball program. And it, it's interesting now because we are now turning into a semi-professional team where payments are involved. And it is. So now it's a big challenge is how you know, managing that and how do we move forward with building this program you know, not only developing ballast basketball, but developing this semi professional program and hopefully one day a professional program fully that can compete in, you know, the Chinese pro leagues or the Asian Southeast Asian League um while still holding on to the purity of the game and holding on to the purity that they have, you know, this basketball that they've created before, you know people from the West like myself you know, came and now teaching, you know, more Western style principles and how do you not lose what they have, what they taught themselves without coaches. Um, that's the case out in the plateau is they love basketball, but they don't, there's no formal coaching. And, uh, so they taught themselves that. So, um, going back to, you know, the spectrum of, of play and, and what you're getting out of it in terms of, compensation that's been interesting for me over these you know last decade uh, sure. seeing what money means you know what does uh, money mean in a basketball saying what does money mean in a, an economy like a village that norla's creating norla pretty much created this new economy out there uh, so it's been an interesting process just understanding what how it affects things and what it was what it because yeah. you you know you need it and you you need it and you need it to survive and you need it and to what extent um, and always a balance so
0: it's still not Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to get into your current gig and what you're doing in in Norlo and the basketball team. But I think it would be it would be a wrong choice not to sort of get in a little bit more on your ability to focus on these things where you do feel that sort of purity of the the game or of the, the moment or the culture or whatever it is you, you may feel that you're getting out of somewhere that you live and the choice to go for, for those listening to go from Costa Rica to live in Australia for a bit, playing basketball to live in Africa playing basketball, um, spending some time in Iceland, and then now being in Tibet, you 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 bring up players that play for the money and have a little bit of calling them them and the way they are sort of climbing the ranks of the uh, semi-pro basketball leagues or whatever it is. What is it that allows you, you feel, to separate the ladder of basketball hierarchy of trying to get yourself into a maybe lower level European league where this can become a job and, and seeing basketball as a career in that sense versus the way you seem to be doing it, where it is, it's been a career for you to, um, to almost use for other, other ends at times in order to experience things or have an impact through humanitarian work you're doing in Costa Rica or wherever it might be. How how do you view that? Because obviously you can see that this isn't the natural road that many other basketball players you're with are taking.
1: Yeah. And I should say I use them just because I, I was never as good at basketball player as these guys, so I always <laughs> sure. came up with them and wish I could have uh, those millions of dollars. But no, it was uh, um, no, it is it is an amount of a hundred percent respect for these these players because these are incredible players that are worth that much and are getting paid sure. that much. Um, it's just interesting seeing the other side of it, and it's another side that I think as a college basketball player from the U S there's not um, there's a whole world out there that exists that um, that I think more U S college basketball players would have a really amazing experience. And on the other side of things, these teams could really use the knowledge and the expertise of these. So there's really, um, this this the world of the higher paying athletes and the agents and again that's the one that people know about and get publicized and get pressed for and it's kind of what people go for the same thing with like division one two II, and three in basketball like you hear a lot the goal is always D, you know, D1 trying to get that D1 scholarship and when there's a whole world of D3 of really really good basketball and really pure basketball and there's a whole world of it that a lot of people at the high school level don't know about. Um,
0: you know, maybe- but I think even even beyond that, it sounds like, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I am, but your, your movements and, and some of the places you lived and what seems to be the most impactful moments that you've had in some of these things make it that it's not just that the basketball is high quality. But the, the the cultures and the the people you're around you don't you don't seem to be working toward being rich by American standards. Mm. But it's not like this time that you've spent has been has been any any bit a waste of time. I think, mm. in my view and in your own, I I would hope you are really living life to the fullest. So how do you? I mean, do you not even think of the idea of um, possibly trying to stay in one league for a while? Where was that not not an option? Or because I would imagine, I mean, Bill, I've seen you play. You're not you're not an NBA All Star. I understand that, but at the same time, with this huge spectrum, I imagine you could have a serviceable career for five years in your mid twenties in some. Lower level European league to possibly be uh, paying for an apartment in a small city and somewhere, but you've you chose to live in such different interesting areas, sometimes not being paid at all. I mean, how like what motivated you to actually be t- totally free from this? Like the expectation of, oh, you're going to go play European basketball. to to try to get or or maybe not European, maybe Costa Rican, but like staying in that league and trying to make a name and trying to make more money? Like what pushed you to just say, all right, I'm just going to use this as a tool rather than making it the focus?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I would like to say, you know, honestly, when it was happening, especially early on, when it was all just so new, a lot of it was just, by chance in a way of the places i did end up you know i think i did there was certainly a part of me that wanted to see different things you know i wanted to see you know and you could start with different continents you know going to different continents and and seeing the different yeah the cultures in, in that way and it it just so happened where it worked out just by the people i met you know starting off with a division three player a division three coach wanted a division three player for costa rica and was that division three connection then in iceland it happened to be jimmy um you know message saying hey we need a guy can you come out to iceland next month yeah yeah of course uh when i was in la for a a reality tv show audition and there was a player from australia there we connected and when the iceland Season um, was up, or the MIT basketball season. I came back and coached after Iceland. When that was up, you know, got in touch with him and said, "Hey, uh, is there, a, you know, can we, can I play in Australia?" He said, "Yeah, come down." Um, now, Africa. It was actually the one of the cleaning ladies at MIT who used to come to all our practices. Her cousin was on Cape Verde's national team, and she said, "You should come play basketball in Cape Verde." So, okay. Um uh how do you
0: say okay so quickly? I mean, this seems these are you're kind of globe-trotting at that point. is w- isn't there some fear of what is this place going to be like or is it total curiosity?
1: And I think that's where it's nice, you know, just as like the Tibetans in their new job, this new 9 to 5 job, they have the yak to kind of like hold on to it was the same basketball made it comfortable like i knew what basketball was and wherever you go no matter how crazy of a situation you are going or the different of a place it is like basketball i think was made it safe or it made it comfortable like i knew wherever i was going like once on the basketball court we were things were going to be fine like uh we had that connection and yeah, so that's, there really wasn't, I don't I don't think there was really any fear. I mean, first time going down to, it was always like a nervousness, and especially that's how it evolved over time, like, especially first going down to Costa Rica, it was very much on me, my, my focus was on me, it was on my performance, like, oh, how am I going to do, am I going to be strong enough, am I going to play well enough, um, and I don't think that was a good thing, and I've learned a lot from it over the years, where... The focus stopped being like on me as a player and and what I'm going to do. You know, it was always intention of helping the team and doing well for the team and doing well for this community, but it was always on me. And as kind of time went on and especially seeing things like in Africa, seeing um, the living situation, seeing the poverty in Africa, seeing the poverty on like our team, seeing Like where, you know, teammates living situations and teammates like eating situations, seeing that and uh, seeing where they were really, really great athletes, but they hadn't had as much coaching or experience as I did. And the focus started shifting more on, okay, what can I, what can I do to help these like teams, like stop worrying about if you're going to make the shot or not, or how many points you're going to score, like start Really, really, you know, becoming, you know, in Africa as a player coach, help coach, you know, the practices. And um, that kind of evolved to where I am now in, in Tibet, still as like a, a player coach and now kind of helping manage the team.
0: Cool. So, about as far as Tibet, can you give a quick summary of how you got there? How did you end up on the Tibetan plateau? And what is the situation with basketball Mm. yeah
1: um so i was again i needed a break from basketball actually after africa i really needed a break because it was again these couple years of um you know of of globetrotting but also emotional experiences like and when i say you know money's not involved. Like it, it was tough at times, you know, it was very tough, like managing all this on, um, little to no money. Like it's, it's, um, very difficult to do. And you, it's difficult physically, emotionally, and, um, it's a grind and, you know, um, I, there's a, it makes you again, not only seeing all of it, but also being in it, it's, you know, come from a, a, a very lucky background, and a lot of people don't have that choice of how much money they make and, and things like that. So it was it was tough. Um, and so I came back, and I did need a break. I was at, I was gonna go play in uh, a French region in South America. I guess a French colony, French uh, French Guyana. So I was going to play a team called Amazonia, kind of right near the Amazon rainforest. And I was really looking forward to it. But after after I got on the plane back from Africa, you know, we had lost in the national uh, championships. I didn't, you know, I really felt like I let like a whole island down. Um,
0: They're still, they still have stories about that, that <laughs> year the big American was there. Right. And, you know... Um,
1: So it was tough and even things like, you know, other things like, um, there's, you know, relationship stuff, you know, I, I, um, just got out of a relationship. I, my work, my computer actually got stolen like the day before the national championships. And so it was just a lot and I just need to take a break. And so that's actually where I took a stint. I I stopped playing basketball and and started playing handball. Um, when I came back from Africa, I did that for a couple of uh, it was at that time where I was trying to decide, okay, what's next? Where um, you know I, I was taking time off, and yeah, my cousin. I had heard about Tibet and I'd heard about what was kind of going on there, and um, you know, both from a culture standpoint of this beautiful culture, and then also from a historical standpoint. And um, while I was, uh, yeah. Um, not playing basketball I started reading up on it and as I was reading up on it the same thing happened just as it was on my mind just so it was back with Costa Rica basketball was on my mind to come back and I get this email same thing Tibet was on my mind and on Facebook my cousin makes this post about this company in Tibet and uh, my cousin went to school, as I mentioned, my aunt and uncle were in, were in India, and they went to sc- high school in India. And they went to high school with this woman, Dutchin, who started this organization in Tibet. And so on Facebook, it was a post about Norla and what it was doing. And the minute I saw it, you know, I saw Tibet, it triggered it and started reading more. I was just fascinated at what they were doing. And then as I scroll through, I see the basketball court. And I was like, wow, this looks like really amazing basketball. Like I, I have to go see this. like, you know, I'm I'm not playing. What did
0: the basketball court
1: look like? It was a picture of the court at Norla and just this raw beat up basketball court with cracks. And, but then you look and it's just the vast plateau behind it and it was the most beautiful basketball court I've ever seen. And yeah, I, Uh, you know, I wasn't playing anymore, but I I had to go see this. And I, uh, so that's when I, yeah, messaged Detchen. There was a position open for a tutor for her daughter. I've never tutored before. I was coached some kids in basketball, but horrible teacher, but I still applied. I said, I'd love to come, you know, be the tutor. Uh, I'd love to, I just really want to be out there, anything I can do. And then I did end up talking, I think, a little too much about basketball because um, I was just completely fascinated with the court and the prospect of nomads and monks playing basketball. Um, so I got I got rejected. Um, but it, it was the same thing with Costa Rica. It was one of those things where I, I had I just had to. This was what was next. It was extreme clarity on where I, I wanted to go. So I bugged her for about a year as I was playing handball and and. Um, finally the time came where she said, okay, uh, yeah, uh, if you'd like to come coach, uh, love to have you. We can't pay for anything. So I saved up and, um, yeah, pay for everything to get out there. And that's when Tibet began.
0: Awesome. And that was almost four years ago now. Is that right?
1: Oh yeah. I went out August of 2015,
0: three and a half. Wow. And. Norla, that's N O R L H A. Is that right? Mm-hmm. They um I was there, as I said, and that is one of the best places I've ever been. I mean, it you mentioned it briefly before, but it's not just the people and the well, it is the people, but it's the people and sort of how Norla has brought together this community. And I I was astounded just to see how the people are so dedicated to one another in that they live in the community together, but also this business, they're all growing together. Um, how does a basketball team form from that? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a great idea for a business, but you know, wh- what is the, the deal with basketball in Tibet and in Rotoma?
1: Yeah. So I, I, from that picture, I, you know, I knew they obviously played a little bit of basketball um, and it wasn't until I got there where I realized how much they're like crazy for basketball. So when I showed up, the yeah, the first thing is Champa, the team captain, and Dorji, uh, the best English speaker, came up. And they said, um, yeah, we want to be the best team in Ghana, in Ghana Tibetan Tibet and the prefecture, the entire prefecture. So that's about the size of a small state in the U.S. Uh, how many people? I put it at maybe 250,000 maybe.
0: All right, so there's mu- there's multiple teams in this. Oh yeah, in this prefecture, I mean there's there's
1: there's hundreds of teams. Like each village, wow. each village and each monastery like has a team. And again, it's not teams as we think in the West, where there's a coach and there's practices and they have uniforms and they. No, you know it's a couple,
0: you know guys coming together and playing and hey, let's go play. Um, so did you know there was that much? That's when you learned about the intensity of basketball when they came up and said, We need a coach.
1: Yeah, they said, We want to be the best team, and yeah, we want you to coach us. And I asked, How often do you want to practice? They said, Tomorrow morning. I said, Okay, and how often? He said, Twice a day. I was Whoa, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so, yeah, so we started the next day, and it started with just uh, the employees at Norla. So, just within Norla. Uh, yeah we had about 25 guys they all signed up showed up and yeah it was an interesting Our first practice I really didn't know what to expect but it was you know it was outdoors uh, again this beautiful vast plateau grasslands and hills as far as the eye can see you know this monastery in the background and a lot of people came to come watch you know they across the entire plateau they love basketball and but there's no coaches um and so yeah it was a big deal that there was an american coach
0: and you've got them doing line drills and sprints up and down the court or yeah how's this, how does it play out yeah so this is our
1: like first ever practice because normally they'll just kind of play pickup ball or a lot of times it's just one ball and 30 dudes 30 guys just shooting that one ball, you get one shot, and then there's this huge melee to grab the rebound, and then the next person shoots, and that goes on for like hours. Um, so this is a first like, yeah, practice, formal practice, and so a lot of people came and watched from the village, and yeah, it's just this ragtag bunch of uh, employees. Um, you know, some guys were in like business suits, like dressed up for it. Some guys were in dress shoes. Um, you know, it was. Guys wearing mittens and no one in like a basketball uniform, like nothing, nef- like jeans and because uh, um, as nomads, you just, you know, you're wearing the same thing all the time. Um, so they, they show up and yeah, one guy uh, comes riding in on his motorcycle right into center court, like just his practice is starting. And um, it was, um, yeah. It was an interesting first scene. And I said, okay, all right, well, uh, we'll see how this goes. And yeah, we we put them through doing line drills, layup lines, um, you know, quick feet, defensive stance and slides. And um, it was, as you'd expect, a lot of um, just uh, interesting basketball,
0: non basketball movements. Yeah. What I've seen. Uh, and how did your what is this all leading toward so it's a league there or what what's that do they have a league
1: yeah they don't have any leagues what they do is they have these tournaments that just kind of pop up randomly and these tournaments um depending on how much prize money is involved and usually it's either a tibetan businessman putting it up or um like a monk um will, will put on a tournament. Um, yeah, they'll have teams from all over the plateau come, nomadic teams, monk teams, and they'll come from all over, sometimes up to 50 teams, and uh, they'll camp out, and uh, sometimes they'll, the tournament will coincide with a big horse race, which is their traditional sport, um, and yeah, they just play all day, and the tournament lasts about a week, these are marathon tournaments, you'll play upwards of two times a game, two times, two games a day, You'll play at 1 a.m. sometimes, and uh, yeah, and then and then that's it. So people go and play these tournaments, and then they'll go back and just kind of play around. And um, so that's what you know. The, what it's been is trying to mix the two worlds, find the best of these this thing that they taught themselves, which is the incredible part. They taught themselves how to play basketball with like nothing, and how they're able to get so good some of these teams it's truly incredible from just very recently you know 10 years ago they weren't able to watch it anywhere and just recently they have smartphones and can watch the nba do they like it you'll see guys trying to mimic all these moves and and that's what it ends up being just these okay basketball players trying to mimic these nba players and um so that's where there's not as much um you know, there isn't as much skill development. There's usually not much strategy. Um, so that's just what we were trying to do at the start is just, okay, let's have this team. Um, let's just introduce these principles and see, uh, how they mix. Um, and how do we take, you know, very Tibetan style play, very physical, like borderline, you know, fighting, um, and, you know, soften it around the edges, put some strategy to it, put some skill with it. Don't lose that aggression. Don't lose that fight and that physicality um, and mix the two worlds. And it's been a progression since then. And um, ever since, yeah, we've slowly expanded from the poise at Norla to the best players in the surrounding village to now the best players in the region. And we now, because we have best players, from around the region, we need to bring people in, and even within the village, as a way to help provide income to these nomadic families. We we are now, yeah, paying players and uh, are now a semi-professional program.
0: Sure. So I could see I can see how fun and and valuable it must be doing this, and uh, you know you've played basketball around the world. I'm sure you could coach in a lot of different places, if that was, uh, if that was the whole goal. What is it about the growth of the sport there and the way the sport seems to be finding its way into their lives that makes this such a good, good spot for you to be? Why, why do you enjoy it so much particularly? Because um, I imagine you could coach in a lot of places. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess two parts with that. And one part is one from a selfish reason in terms of just an incredible, incredibly beautiful culture and just such a deep, you know, from nomadism, that way of life that's been going on for thousands of years to Tibetan Buddhism and just every how big a part that plays in everyone's lives. To you know the area itself and nature and being out there at eleven thousand feet and all of the elements and um, so just that just being amongst that is is really uh, invigorating and it, it touches all of the senses and and then on the other side of that with with basketball um, you see how much it means to them and you see how much they enjoy it and you see how much some of these guys how it's their life. And they just want to be the best basketball players out there and it means something deeper to them. And these are people who have been through a lot, you know, collectively as, as a people, they've, they've had a history and they've, between their lives as nomads and dealing with elements and, and you know, those harsh winters and uh, just what it takes to be a nomad. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive a day especially in the women's shoes as a female nomad i mean you're working 20 hours a day getting up you know 4 a.m and, and milking and just all of the chores that go on throughout the day um you know and you're going back to some you know a cold tent there's no heat you know there's a little bit of the dung that's burning and uh you know the food's the same and gosh you know as a Westerner, you view it as a tough life and and they, you know, they just do it and they enjoy it. Um, but to, to see like in their eyes, some of these players, just what basketball is for them, almost this sense of freedom. Like you, no matter what you're going through at that time as a basketball player, when you're on that court, you are, they're just alive. You see them alive. You can see it in these guys' eyes And for the women, you see them where they don't play sports and they they never have been. And when you see them, you know, once afraid to go on the basketball court or only practice, you know, at the break of dawn so no one else will see. And now they're out there laughing and smiling and playing with the guys and playing with the monks. And um, it's a very cool thing to see. And when you see all this passion for it, you and you were blessed to have a lot of really great teachers and a lot of really great experiences you I mean there's no other question of where you just want to give as much as you can because you know it's going to affect them even more than it has for you it's going to be a bigger impact in their lives than it was for you and they're going to be able to do things even greater with it so it was a first time really seeing myself as like a teacher as I'm sure teachers across the board see, you know, teachers in, uh, in school and musicians. And it was our first time like, wow, okay, this is, you know, I am lucky enough to have something to give that these people are going to be able to do even greater things with and allow them that to feel alive, allow them to, to, to have that feeling. Um, yeah, so seeing that um, and seeing that growth, and now seeing it in our village, and hoping we can do it in different areas and collectively for the Tibetan region, the Tibetan plateau, you know, to have, you know, basketball now. They have these things that they hold on to Buddhism, their language, you know, horse riding, these. Instances where they can connect and they can gather and now here's this sport that connects them to the rest of the world where they were Really kind of shut off for so long for a number of reasons Um, And now here's this thing That they love and the rest of the world loves and it uh, Yeah, it connects them with each other and the rest of the world And that's where just I hope I can do my small part in just helping be that connection at least to the outside world and uh, where it's appropriate
0: Yeah, I mean, I know a number of our friends have been lucky enough to find their way to Rotoma, and a lot of that has been through basketball. And I know if they had even part of the um, enjoyment in their experience as I did, that it affected them, and I'm sure it affected the people in Rotoma. So we're sort of uh, moving toward the end now. I wanted to get to a few... A few of your thoughts on life up there on the Plateau and what that's like. And with some of these people that have visited, I know there's been uh, myself, friends of ours. I bet there's other people that come through that are coming for one reason or another. Some of it being the uh, media that has been around Rotoma recently and the basketball team specifically. What is your favorite place or thing or experience you like to show somebody who is western and is new to the tibetan plateau like hey ch- you got to check this thing out or you're excited to show them it
1: mm. It's the the one thing is the thing i do the most and just because i feel like it captures everything it's just a, a run around the monastery so you start off uh, start off at Norla and you run through the village and you see everyone, you're passing by everyone, you're passing by their homes, people are you know, maybe coming in with their yak uh, in the evening uh, kids are maybe coming home from school then and all the kids are coming by and you're giving them high fives and, uh, you're running through, you see all the old people, you just see the village as you're running through and you get up near the monastery and um yeah you see the monks out uh uh you know uh you can hear them sometimes when they're uh, inside the monastery in their prayers you see them out walking around um you'll see people on the passport court near the monastery um and you go up and you go up the hill behind the monastery and as you're doing this you're passing by everyone who are at the monastery doing their prayers doing their uh, circambulations, which builds up karma as you go around the monastery, spinning the prayer wheels, um, uh, with their prayer beads and humming, you know, um, money padme hum, you know, that's the litany of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and as you're up top and you just have this beautiful monastery with these gold, uh, roofs and red and, and white sides and, uh, and behind it is just the vast plateau and all of these hills and you can see on some of the hills um, Lapses and lapses are uh, uh, Offerings to the mountain deities. because before Buddhism even came there was another religion called Bon, Where the nature had all of the power and the elements so you honor the mountain gods uh, so you see those large um uh almost their makeshift um little temples where people bring their clan's arrows every year and build every year building their you know 10 foot long arrow from their clan and putting it on you see that in the distance as you're running around you go down the hill and then you're able to take a break and do the prayer wheels yourself as you go through and you know, say the prayers yourselves, and with each, take that moment to just be in the moment and just be there and be there with that prayer and be there with the surroundings. And then you run through the village, uh, another part of the village on the way back, and saying hello to everyone or demo, uh, and you make your way back home. And so, in that run, in that 20 minute run, you just get everything. You get the snapshot of what this place is and that and just the daily life there itself is just such a interesting and and really invigorating thing to be a part of um so that's what i i like taking to people it's just just that run or you can walk it around the monastery through the village and you you get everything that
0: sounds amazing um yeah i next time i'm there we'll definitely have to I'll make sure I bring my running shoes. Um, You brought up a few things there, Demo, and I think another word. Is there a favorite bit of vocabulary you have picked up while you're there, either English or not English? And if it's not in English, can you please translate?
1: Yeah, my my Tibetan is very much um, – I'm definitely butchering it, and it's definitely just – on the basketball court, it's it's only on the basketball court I'm able to speak it, and it's very much uh, to to Benglish, where there's English and Tibetan, and no one seems to understand it except for the basketball players, because <laughs> I tried other places and people do not get like stares. But the basketball players, and I think it's especially some of them who've been we've been around each other for so long, you know, three and a half years now, they get what I'm trying to say. And now, under-
0: can you give can you give an example?
1: Oh gosh, I apologize to all the Tibetans out there listening to this and but it's um I don't know when we're on the court I feel like I really have to be in it, but uh uh Bom. Um Yoka uh T T Gonta Gonta Meka uh Joai Joy Tanjup Gorka Gorka Tanjup. Gokalogjen uh Gokalogjen Golo Aig.
0: Okay, and what were you saying there? I
1: was saying, Diggy uh, Ball, uh, when you have the ball, you want to look at the whole court. Uh, look at the whole court, uh, then drive hard to the right. Drive hard, um, give a fake pass, give a fake shot, um, then pass it to Golo, a uh, teammate and Golo will hit the shot.
0: Nice. And that's a good play. Oh, uh, it that works, a yeah. okay. <laughs> works a lot. Yeah. Okay. It like
1: Digibon to Golo. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, I'm still learning the language. And it's interesting because Tibetan itself, you know, Tibetan itself is uh, its own language, uh, completely different than Mandarin or Chinese, um, uh, its own written script. And, but within it, um, there's different dialects in these three main areas of Tibet. Um different dialects. We're in this Amdo region, which is a lesser known area. The main dialect comes from Lhasa, the capital. So we're in Amdo. Um, So there's not just as many resources to like learn it uh, traditionally with, um, you know, certain academic materials. And then even within Amge, it's called, uh, this dialect, there's a lot of sub-dialects and slang and so Rotoma, the way Rotoma people speak is going to be different just slang wise than you know an hour down the road um so it's it's been interesting trying to pick it up and um with my work a lot of it is in english um and i do like global sales and e-commerce so it's dealing a lot with with um people outside uh, the area and teaching um, the Tibetans in who are, I am working with English cause they need to learn the English in order to communicate and, and it's global business. So basketball is kind of my chance when I'm out in the court, you know, it's just, you know, it's, you know, Tibetans and basketball there and learning how to communicate.
0: And do they call it basketball also?
1: They call it, uh, gondla, um, which means like ball pretty much.
0: Okay. Um, okay. Um, okay. Okay, so just one final question. Looking at some of these choices you've made, going to Costa Rica, I mean, I guess India before that, and then moving around with basketball, finding your way now to Rotoma, and, and the, the struggles, it sounds like, during that. I mean, it's not all easy when you're not getting paid a ton and trying to figure out where you're going to be living. And But at the same time, you you seem to be putting yourself in a position to say yes to things, to opportunities when they come up. And that, to me, is what sort of comes across as um, something for me to continue to try to keep myself open to, right, Is, is being able to jump on opportunities when they come at me. What kind of advice would you have for somebody who's coming out of school, coming out of college in the States, and they want to they think they want to learn about the world. They want to see the world a bunch. Um, Maybe they, they have some sort of sport that they play or other skills that they have. Um, And maybe they're going to use those in the way you did. Maybe not, but what is it that maybe you, you having been on this path for, if we can call it that for almost a decade now and before that, or, 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 before that, maybe what your attitude was toward it, what would be your advice for someone who wants to learn about the world and and see a bunch of things or whatever it is, you know, um, that you may have thought that you were after at the time?
1: Yeah, I guess, I mean, the biggest one for those people who do want to explore and, and kind of see the world is, yeah, I mean, for me, it was basketball. And it's Exploring those connections, like finding that connection, finding those things that you are passionate about. More than likely, other people around the world have that connection too. And whether it's sports, whether it's basketball, whether it's again music, an instrument, whether it's the arts, whether it's a particular academic subject, whether it's religion, there's so many connections that we have, like between remote nomads in the Tibetan Plateau. And, uh, you know, people from the West and people, you know, uh, rocket scientists at MIT, like some of these guys were, um, you know, they have that connection you know, in basketball. And even when I went to Nepal, I was traveling to Nepal and I just, especially these days with technology and the world is so small in a lot of ways. I, I literally just typed in Nepal basketball, found their page, messaged them and said, Hey, I'm coming to Nepal. Is there any basketball going on this week, uh, next couple of weeks? And there was a tournament the next day. They said, hey, come and play, played in the tournament, and then just now I've made so many connections with those people and ended up coaching the women's national team there for like a month. Um, so uh, advice is, yeah, find those connections. And, and yeah, and I know this is easier said than done, but find a way to um, how you can support it and um you know whether it's finding something in that country or maybe it's a situation where you're not getting paid but it's a situation where you know maybe you can find a place that has housing and food where you volunteer your time and uh, for housing and food in a particular area uh, with an organization um yeah but it, at the heart of it it's those connections it's it's uh they're people all around the world enjoy the same things that all anyone in the U S is doing or in Europe or, uh, and to find those and those usually end up presenting, uh, opportunities, uh, in, in their own ways.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, great way to sort of end this. Um, I, you know, you and I have sort of met through some of those, um, some of those connections. We've also played sports when we were in, in school and, I'm obviously lucky to be able to have gotten to Rotoma because of the connection we had through school. So it all comes full circle, and I think your bill, your sort of joy of basketball, uh, comes across in each of these steps that you've taken to sort of get yourself to to Tibet. And it doesn't surprise me that um, that connections are what is most valuable because being being able to really enjoy basketball in such a pure sense and the way that people get what they get out of the court seems to be seems to be something everybody could use a little bit more of whether it's like from a instrument or from art or whatever and in my experience and i think yours as well people will um, sort of make way for someone who wants to share that with other people and like they'll they'll find a way to sort of incorporate them the way that Detchen seemed to have incorporated you into the culture at Rotoma. So it's definitely good advice. I hope uh, everyone listening can find whatever it is they're, they're passionate about in a similar way. Um, It's been great talking, Bill. I really appreciate the time. I, and just, just the, the sincerity with a lot of these points and it's been a, quite a journey you've been on. Um, I have been watching as many others have along the way, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come. Is there anything else you want to bring up? You want to talk about, you want to say, um, before, before we end this thing? Oh, just
1: anyone who is ever interested in, in coming out like yourself, please do get in touch. Go to Tibetbasketball.com. Uh, Shoot shoot a message. Love to have you out there. Whether you're a basketball player or not, love to have you, uh, everyone out there at some point.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned TibetBasketball.com. Is there anywhere else we can reach you? Um, you have oh, Twitter, Fate, any of those things?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, TibetBasketball.com on the uh, basketball side of things and then Norla.com, N-O-R-L-H-A.com if anyone's interested in uh, one of the really, really beautiful products that uh, – these, these Tibetans make really incredible products.
0: Awesome. And I will have both of those in the notes from this conversation. I personally have a few pieces in Norla gear. They're, they're the best, they're the warmest things I owned. I gave my sister something for her wedding. She still uses it every day. Uh, So I, I fully, fully am behind Norla and there'll be some, some links to that. So yeah, Bill, thanks a lot. I appreciate the time and Good luck in whatever is coming in 2019.
1: Thanks, Corey. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. See you, man. Hey, well, either you enjoyed that conversation or you are willing to spend time on this podcast. Either way, check out the website, podcast.coreygarvey.com, and look at the show notes where I have some images and links to things we talked about. All tunes come from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. Look out. Thanks for dropping by, and I'll talk to you next time on Settle the Far.